0: G'day and welcome to the Head Shepherd Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Ferguson, CEO at Next and Agri. At the Head Shepherd Podcast, we focus on all things livestock, through the stories of the people that farm them and the people that study them and work with them on a daily basis. We get to work in amazing locations like I am today at Glenthorne Station here in the South Island of New Zealand. At Next and Agri, our tagline is farming in our hearts, science in our heads. And we live that out every day and you'll certainly hear that coming out in the Head Shepherd podcast. Before we start today's episode, I really do want to thank again Allflex, our, our sponsors. Like the Head Shepherd podcast, Allflex has continued to evolve and now they've joined forces with MSD Animal Health. The combined forces is pretty exciting for Australasian agriculture. The science of, of healthier animals through, through ID and, and through, the, through the animal health products like the Coopers range, which are an MSD product that we might be more familiar with really fantastic to have such a close alignment with those those two companies now just really exciting to continue head shepherd we've, we've gone past our 50 episodes we're into season five now yeah fantastic to see the podcast continue to grow thank you to all those supporters out there that continue to support us and and continue to listen and, and give us feedback it's it really is awesome we better get on with the show Welcome back to Head Shepherd. Pretty excited this week to have a good friend of mine, Herman Radsmoe. Welcome, Herman. Hi, Ferg. Good to see you. So mate. We've uh, been locked away from each other for a while, but uh, yeah, it would be good to have a chat today, and I'm sure the listeners will be keen to hear what uh, what you've been up to for the last 30, 40 years. I guess we'll start off with a bit of background, but from renos to dairy cows to oysters to shrimp, everything in between, you've done some interesting stuff over the years. Can you give us a quick, uh, maybe the shortened version of, of that career?
1: Yeah, I'll try, I'll try to give you the five-minute rundown <laughs> on a 40-year career. It's certainly been interesting with a number of chapters in it. Um, my, my career started uh, basically uh, by accident in many ways. That I was always interested in animal science, but not necessarily research. And after my training, um, I got a job opportunity to work in at an agricultural research center um, run by the New South Wales Department of Agriculture. And Trangy was certainly known as probably one of the best sheep breeding research centers in the world. It had an incredibly long reputation with very uh, eminent people working there. I was very fortunate to get a job there working on resistance to fly strike and merino sheep. And after eight years, that opened the door for me to get to um, a position at Sydney University, where I was very fortunate to work with two incredibly strong mentors, Professor John Edgerton, who was the world leader in foot rot, and Professor Frank Nicholas, who was probably one of the best animal geneticists and still is. Um, and in combination, we looked at a program to look at genetic resistance to uh, foot rot in Merino shape. And from there, new technologies emerged. We moved into uh, gene mapping in merino shape. And uh, the genomics era opened up. And I also got a program looking at fasciolo um, or liver fluke resistance in Merino sheep, in a program in in Indonesia. But that's a separate topic for a different podcast. As as funding dried up in the wool industry, uh, this was all industry funded. An opening came up to work in um, dairy cattle genomics, particularly the molecular era opened up, and uh, genomics opened the door to apply very powerful technologies to a really strong industry where genetics was well-established in the dairy industry. And that was a very steep learning curve to apply these technologies. And once again, after eight years, when funding, funding ceased, um, we moved into aquaculture where it was basically open an open blank page to apply new breeding technologies, both traditional and new ones, to a range of species and for the last five or six years I've been involved in both both pearl oyster breeding and um, more recently or continue to in in Australian shrimp farming and that's where I'm sitting at the moment.
0: Excellent thanks mate so yeah obviously pretty important days back at Trangie, and I guess a lot of the old papers I've read are all from probably that era when there was a lot of breeding research going on, a lot of selection lines and I guess back in the days where you have 10-year projects rather than three years so you can actually do some stuff. I guess I'm intrigued about the fly strike work and sort of what you did there and uh, and it was all on body strike which has been breed strike I guess focused since then but with the season around Australia at the moment with sort of lots of I guess non-seasonal rain and plenty of temperatures to go, at warmer temperatures, it's, it's uh, absolutely prime fleece rot conditions. Yeah, just be keen to hear hear what you did and what you found.
1: Yeah, look, um, it, it was an Australian wool industry-funded program at Trangy and it really was pioneering looking at um, long-term permanent solutions to fly strike. And um, as you said, breed strike was not considered important in the face of high acceptance of mulesing um which offered lifelong permanent control against breed strike but body strike had a high impact but not every season but um we were looking particularly at aspects of lifelong control minimized reliance on chemicals and offering a, a easy care feature i hate the word but it sort of assumes that you don't care about your sheep but um it, it is sort of lower input sustained management to look at sheep farming without the high laboring costs for, for control of fly strike. And the things we found was, first of all, um, there's a lot of genetic variation in resistance to body strike, the, the susceptibility of sheep to become struck on the body. That's, that's not in the breech or the pizzle or the pole area, but all over the body, high cost strike. We also found out that Fleece rot, which, which predisposes sheep um, after periods of wet weather to fly strike, was an incredibly good genetic indicator to fly strike. So we could select animals that were more resistant just on the basis of fleece rot rather than having to get animals struck. And we developed challenge systems to control fleece rot in genetic lines and, once again, treny was really the playground for sheep breeders we had Access to wide industry resources, uh, and as a young scientist, I could almost do what I wanted within bounds um, to, to be creative and think about a whole range of things. And we looked at an incredibly large number of fleece and skin characters that um, could also be used as predictors for fleece rot, and therefore improve body strike. And we came up with a number of indicators which are now used in Australian sheep breeding values um, as predictors of both. Flesh rot and fly strike. So I think that was quite a important chapter. But I always felt uneasy about, about mulesing and breed strike. We knew that in the 1930s, before mulesing came in, uh, incredibly important people in the sheep industry, Belshner and Macaris, would would be looking at literally hundreds of thousands of sheep, and could already see that there were genetic differences. Uh, in Merino sheep lines uh, in their uh susceptibility to, to breed strike. But obviously musing uh, overtook that. And animal welfare in those days was some something that was really left to field, you know, something that industry was not concerned with as much as it is today in terms of um being being really something of the greenies and the lefties uh, and the animal welfare lobby. It screamed about animal welfare and industry thought that they were doing the best thing. Uh, cruel to be kind to, to control breed strike, but it, I felt pretty uncomfortable with it.
0: Yeah, and I guess mulesing remains as one of the most contentious farm animal treatments, probably globally, but definitely in, in the world I play in. I guess I know my thoughts, but what are your thoughts on, on how breeding can completely remove the need for, for that practice?
1: Oh look! I I think um, the industry has looked at alternatives, and um, they made a big declaration in 2010 that musing will be phased out. Uh, 2021, we're still musing. Um, I think there is almost a polarization in the industry now. Those that will stay with it at all cost, and I think I think it's not warranted. I think there are incredibly good alternatives around to to provide. Lifelong care for sheep without the need for musing, and breeding is a very strong component of that. and once again, if you go looking for genetic differences between animals and sire groups, you will find them, and they have they have been documented. So there are sires that show progeny groups that are as resistant as mules sheep to breed strike. And then on the other end are size that are extremely uh, susceptible, leaf progeny are extremely susceptible. So once again, it's a choice that you make as a breeder where you could get your ram source from and you could make incredibly fast gains. You know, you bring in resistant rams and the first generation in 12 months is already halfway there. You, you don't have to wait 20 years, which was always the argument. and. We knew that this existed if if we started in nineteen eighty five where a race is um we would be mules free nationwide There would be no need for mulesing.
0: I think that's a really good point. a lot of these things, genetics particularly but yeah breeding for disease resistance is is always considered slow, but when you actually look back the quicker you start the quicker you you get it done and and ten years can go pretty quickly and and uh yeah, the more we focus on breeding programs because once you've once you've got that change and it's cemented in the industry, yeah, that that disease or welfare issue is, is gone completely, which is which I guess is the exciting space that, that we work in these days. One other, I guess, big welfare issue that you and I have worked on together and, and while it's still very much gaining momentum, I think the foot rot breeding value will and particularly in formal sheep, um breeding sheep that are resistant to to footrot, obviously it continued on from that early work that that you'd done. I think what we're achieving now is certainly go down as one of the better achievements of my career and hope for yours as well um we've both it's been great to work with you on that on that project and, and I guess right from that first meeting you were always adamant that a quantitative approach would be the most successful. Of course, we sort of know now that you are right why were you so sure that that would that would work and why does i guess why does a good selection principles work in in disease resistance?
1: Yeah, well, once again, um, I think the benefit of hindsight is, is a blessing. Um, we'd been there 10 years before. We looked at a program looking at genetic resistance to, um, to foot rot in merino sheep. Once again, um, foot rot is um, an incredibly painful uh, condition in sheep and has high welfare justification to look at alternative control methods. Um, control of foot rot through vaccination is effective, but not lifelong lasting. Eradication is possible, um, but on a national scale would be very difficult. So the best way is to to learn to live with the enemy, and put up the best barriers you can. And we knew once again from a very large ten-year breeding program that natural genetic variation exists within the marina industry in terms of sire groups that would produce um, highly resistant progeny drops. And on the other spectrum, there are sires that produce highly susceptible. The trick was how to identify them. And, you know, like fleece rot, you can look at fleece characters. In the case of foot rot, you cannot do a simple test for resistance. and looking at feed confirmation, et cetera. none of those things were really important or useful the only way to do it is to challenge systems expose uh, expose progeny groups to a, a field outbreak where things are semi-controlled and score and it's an eyeball test and it's low highly effective and that can be translated into a breeding value so once again when, when New Zealand Merino came on board to look at genetic resistance, the best way was to start looking at soy progeny groups and that can build a database where eventually you get good connectivity with industry flocks and you can, once again, when you score on farm, uh, build up a database that translates that information into breeding values. And breeding values are still the most powerful way of looking at the genetic merit of, of, of individual animals. I guess we also found from early pioneering days in the gene marker work that we could not see a silver bullet or even a rusty one that, that really was a single marker, gene marker test for food product. It just didn't exist. It was a polygenic trait, many genes for small effects, and they all need to be accounted for by direct Expression of the of of the genotypes through phenotype, and therefore you have to have some disease information,
0: uh, and a single market test um, would would not work. Yeah, I think we definitely demonstrated that. And I guess when we did that, the uh, genome wide association study was there. I think it was variation contributed across 13 different chromosomes or something like that. Like it's yeah,
1: so a lot of chromosomes have genes. Of interest. There may be genes of larger effect that we can track, but still you need information of of all those genes. Now, molecular genetics helps us build relationships between animals and make predictive predictions and capacity to predict the breeding values more accurately, but eventually you still need to have good information from industry sources and industry relevant backgrounds. And that's, I think. One way where, where New Zealand was certainly leading the way that if industry gets on board and has an open mindset to combat this disease and not, not fight it, um, you actually can make very significant gains. And once again, very quickly, once you identify super resistant sires, those gene flows can, can be accelerated very quickly.
0: Yeah, and I guess it's been a couple of years, unfortunately, since we've had you over here, but that's definitely where we're at now. There's a few size been, and we're sort of, I guess, identifying new ones all the time now. Every year there's a new, another couple that pop up, and and they've been widely used, and their progeny are showing all the things that they should in terms of their resistance to foot rot. Um, it's across all different fungal genotypes. It's not just the ultra fines. It's not just the strong ones. It's kind of varied, so that gives us lots of opportunities to to make gain across lots of different um production systems and yeah and and the industry here is is well on the road to having a, an animal that's resistant to, to foot rot or at least way less susceptible and uh and we're already seeing that actually flow through to commercial flocks where the frequency of sort of other treatments is is reducing and and that's a pretty ex- exciting place to be um i guess in australia we're seeing general focus still on eradication, rather than actually embracing the work that's done here. There's a few small um, projects kicking away, but not anywhere near the scale that should be happening, but that's um, a, maybe a story for different, a <laughs> different day again. But eradication in Australia, I mean, that's been tried for 40, 50 years. Is it, is it possible to get rid of foot rot out of a country?
1: Oh, look, it's a big challenge, and you shouldn't ask me that during a pandemic. And <laughs> every country is trying to keep the doors closed and eradicate COVID, and we know that that fails. You know, the, the disease pathogens come in, they express themselves if they if they're highly contagious, virulent organisms, and it's basically an open door to start to start that it flares up again. So eradication nationally is, in my view, impossible, but. Eradication on farm is certainly possible and, and methods have been shown that that can work. Uh, it will take a lot of effort and an enormous amount of vigilance that you don't bring the pathogen back in on farm because it does nothing for uh, natural resistance to, to the organism by having it foot rot free. Um, So if you let your guard down, it it basically takes you back to square one. So I think nationally, national eradication, very unlikely. On a closed farm system, um, certainly possible. But we know that Australian sheep breeders trade and move sheep all over the country. And during dry periods, it may be underexpressed, but then you get a wet season like we have now and it's all back to game on, square one. And the problem is that you have state regulatory bodies that all have different views and definitions of foot rot control and eradication, yet sheep move freely across state boundaries. Um, so I I think it's, it's a monumental challenge. Once again, had we started with uh, foot rot breeding 40 years ago, we would be in the position that New Zealand is in. We can live with the disease and deal with it, but in some ways we've perhaps backed the wrong horse.
0: Yeah, Interesting. I guess my mind goes straight to fly strike when we're thinking about the approach taken to, to foot rot and I guess continuing on, there's been your work in fleece rot and then other work in breech strike. Um, should the industry be approaching fly strike in the same way that we approach foot rot, as in challenging Finding the resistant animals and and then developing actual breeding ways for the disease rather than indicator traits.
1: Look, I, I think in the case of body strike, we're well on the way that we can actually use really good indicators that don't have a need for um, for body strike per se. So once again, we can use fleece rod as an indirect selection tool. Um, we've also got indicators indirect indicators for the indicator trait. By the way, of fleece type. Um, and they now translated into sheep breeding values. Now, for breed strike, it's a whole new game. And I, I think we've really put our head in the sand for a long, long time by accepting musing, uh, you know, since the 30s or 50s. And in the 70s, the whole world was in Australia was musing mad with radical muses, even going at first cross sheep. Uh, it went overboard. So it's pegged back a bit. But once again, I think musing has denied us the opportunity to look at alternatives and industry looking for alternatives. And I think we're fortunate that we understand predisposition to breach strike quite well. once again, it's anatomical uh, faults in the breach areas, skin folds in particular, and not just total faults, but very specific location of a certain faults right in the breach area and bear area and DAG formation, they're all incredibly strong indicators on the susceptibility of sheep to breed strike. And so we've got indirect indicators, but collectively we haven't really got a strong index to rank animals for susceptibility or resistance to breed strike. And if you look at the work that John Van Graef did in, in Western Australia, where a large number of progeny groups were uh, let go unmused and that's the biggest caveat you have to stop musing to make to make headway you know you can't look for resistance in mules sheep because it's just it's just underexpressed as a trait he he noted that there are extremely resistant side groups so once again i think you could get an expression of the phenotype on farm and still control fly strike by other means with good management practices, and chemical control. And I I think the industry is very fortunate that it's got a number of tools available to manage fly strut. And in the background, it could make headway with breeding and in 10, 15 years' time be in a much better position and it's probably easier to do than than, than with,
0: with foot rot. Yeah, cool. And I think, yeah, I think... We're gonna see we certainly are seeing breeders focus a lot more on the indicator traits, DAG and breed wrinkle are definitely becoming quite quite a focus for some breeders and and the more that happens the better we the better we go. And it is really amazing when you see those animals that are really low breeding values for DAG and um and will be in a daggy mob and, and completely clean, which obviously massively reduces the risk of fly strike and the same with wrinkles as you as you pointed out. I guess the other thing that we've played around together a bit on is is machine learning. And we did a project for AWI looking at a range of things, but really just as a bit of a uh, testing the concept, whether things like facial recognition or indication of weight or other things that we tried would work. What's your, um, I guess, thoughts around what machine learning can do for livestock production in the future? It's It's certainly... Changing our lives in all sorts of ways, even if we don't know about it. Um, and yeah, I'd be interested in your thoughts on in agriculture.
1: Uh, look, I, I think it's incredibly exciting that you know, as new technologies um, become available, that that you can adapt them to to agricultural applications. They're not necessarily invented with agriculture in mind, but but being sort of of curious mind, you can pick new technologies as they come on board and bring them into agricultural settings. And I certainly see genomics fitting that way. The the biggest barrier was cost, you know, where the human paternity test was $750. We want the same test for a Big Mac price in the industry to make it available. Um, Now, with computing power and using very large information data sets, Uh, Machine learning or artificial intelligence can make sense of very complex data systems and make predictions that the human mind, or even with a statistical breakdown, just can't make easily. And we're talking literally millions of bits of information that it can process and make quite sensible predictions about it, as long as what it's seen in the past is likely to be seen again in the future. Those predictions hold up pretty well, and I, I can think of immediately a few applications. You know, if we look at fly strike, for instance, predicting when fly waves will occur. Um, if we had large-scale regional climate information, fly activity information, um, activity of farmers whether strike was seen in sheep uh, or not, and they plug that information in. We could come up with incredibly powerful uh, forecasting tools of when flies will become or will likely be a problem. And once that sort of generates, it actually generates information in its own right to show what methods uh, don't work and what methods do work. It, it sort of falls out that you can identify unique features within a control system to see where. Uh, the focus could be or where things could be done differently. So the model actually feeds back information as well. And I think another application would be is that really intensive rich areas like, like wool phenotypes, for instance, could be scanned and could be augmented with DNA data or could be in, augmented with visual data or real market signals and can start to make really accurate predictions on what fleece traits could be important. And it just makes those using all the bits of information combined and come up with what we now think of as advanced phenotypes or advanced uh, observations, predictors that could be translated back into breeding values. And even breeding values could be augmented with machine learning when you get, you know, millions of bits of DNA information. Mm Which bits of information are more important than others, and I think eventually whole supply chains will be will be augmented with artificial intelligence on 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 market signals. What what the market will need, how to get there. Um, it will be an incredibly sophisticated set of tools that that farmers and industry can tap into. Um, if I was forty years younger, I, I certainly would start. On 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 that area to um, to to do more researching.
0: Yeah, I think it's got massive massive scope because almost you're only limited by your imagination, really, what machine learning will will do in the future, and uh, yeah, it'd be really interesting to watch. But we better better let you go, Herman, and uh, I need to get back on the road and keep keep trouncing down the down the country. But it's been awesome to have a chat. Um Absolute wealth of experience. Always love love having a chat, and really look forward to sharing a vino one of these days. And either side of the, of the ditch and, and catch like up. A
1: good McLaren Vale sure to, to the fat. And
0: <laughs> thanks, mate. We'll talk soon. See you then. Thanks for listening in to this episode of Season 5 of the Head Shepherd Podcast. A big thanks to the talented Sophie Barnes for producing this podcast. It's not easy to make me sound sensible every week, but Sophie does a fantastic job. Thanks again to our friends at Orflex. They're wonderful supporters of the Australian and New Zealand livestock industries. Now combined with MSD Animal Health, they offer one of New Zealand and Australia's largest livestock product portfolios. They've joined forces to focus on animal health and management, and their products are all backed up by that exceptional service that we know them for. We really do enjoy our long-term association with Orflex and sincerely thank them for sponsoring this episode. And that's over and out at the Head Shepherd Podcast.